It's a delight to see all of you tonight. And the reason is because sometimes when I remember so many of the first days of a retreat uh, for myself, and I look out on to everybody still here, I'm actually surprised. It's like, wow, this is pretty good. You know, we've made it through the first day. Because <laughs> it can, it can be quite challenging, as maybe some of you know, the sleeping off, the dozing, the aches and pains in the body. The first day of uh, a week-long retreat like this can be quite rough, so I just want to acknowledge that. I was leading a retreat now a few years ago with one of our colleagues, uh, Matthew Brensilver, and we were going over the feedback after a retreat and somebody gave us some really good feedback about the retreat. They said the, the retreat was great. And uh, just one feedback, if you could just take away all of the challenges that happened on the first day, it would have been a perfect retreat. <laughs> and it can be like that, the, the, the sleepiness and the aches and pains. And I know for me that that was definitely the case when I started to practice. For example, when I first did my first uh, weekend retreat, it was a Zen retreat. And for me, just because of the things I was going through, it was so incredibly difficult and painful, both physically and emotionally. And after the weekend retreat, I swore to myself, I would never meditate again. <laughs> Could I forgot about it. And ironic that I ended up <laughs> six years in a Zen monastery practicing. So if you had one of those first days, I just want to normalize it to welcome you to retreat life. It's, uh, it's going just fine if it was like that. And what I'd like to do this evening is to share with you just a little bit, giving you one frame to understand possibly what we're doing here together. You know? And then to talk about how we're going to be, how we engage in that. So what we're doing and, and how, to, how to engage in it. what we're doing. You know, the, the title of the retreat is something like Finding Freedom Through Insight Meditation. But what does that mean? What is this freedom? What's a way to start to understand this? And I find it's an arena that I f find difficult to find words for, and, and often it's uh, the place I find words is in poetry, that somehow the poetic can convey at least some feeling sense about possibly the direction that this goes in, in terms of freedom. And there are just a few lines that, that, that uh, come to me around this, and they come from a poem by W.S. Merwin called River of Bees. And this poem takes place in a dream. So here he is, he's in this dream the character of this, this poem. 
And he's going from room to room asking, kind of asking the question, how shall I live? Sometimes asking, asking, what shall I say? These questions about our lives. And so here he is, he's going from room to room. And then at the end of the poem, he comes to a door. And these are the last lines. He says, on the door it says what to do to survive. But we were not born to survive, only to live. On the door it says what to do to survive, but we were not born to survive, only to live. Something so true about that, don't you think? It's just the fact of the matter. None of us are going to survive. We weren't born to survive. We're here only to live. And what I find in my life is that I forget that. I forget the importance of only living of being fully here for my life, to fully live. Because I notice I, I sometimes feel like I'm trying to manage my life in some kind of way, trying to survive it. And I wanna point out that the narrative of surviving or being a survivor in, in, in many contexts is really beautiful. So I'm not trying to diminish the, the power of that story, but in the context of this poem, that's the way I see it, is, is, is my reactivity of trying to survive or manage, running from this place to this, that place. And I forget, I forget what's important for me. And when I'm in this kind of surviving, the way I think Merwin's pointing to, you know, I'm not here for my own life, I'm not here for the lives of the people around me, I'm not here for my, living here for my community or my society. Maybe you can relate to this with the challenges that you face, this human predicament that confronts you, where you get lost in mere surviving and you forget about living in the fullest sense of the word. Maybe this is what this freedom is like from this practice of insight meditation to truly live. So how, how do we begin to explore this on this retreat? And I gave you this frame last night of just this willingness to be present to your experience. And those of you who are here at the, the question and answer that uh, Vinnie and Joanna were leading, you probably heard this, this theme that they were always coming back to with each question of how can you be with this? Trying to open up the space, not about fixing or figuring out, but 
to begin to notice. And the image that I find helpful around this, around really talking about mindfulness, but I'm, I'm offering you a different way of defining it, really through an, an image I want to share with you that I received from one of my teachers, which is that you just have one task on this retreat. Isn't that nice? You just need to remember one thing. And that's to be a door person. He's got one job. Or you are, maybe you're at some fancy hotel or something like that. And you're, you're a door person. And what, do door, what does the door person do? They just keep the door open and greet all the guests that come through the door. That's all you have to do. Just, just to stand there, just to abide at the door and allow the de- a guest to come through, to greet them, to notice them. So the tricky thing about this is I always have to go th- through the things that the door person is not doing. <laughs> so it's about greeting the guests. It's not about shutting the door on the guests that you don't want here on your retreat with you. So that's, just to be clear, it's not in the job description. <laughs> but it's also, you got to greet the guests. So if you go with one of the guests to the restaurant or to the bar to have a drink and hang out and think about that thought or that problem, that's also not in the job description because you just have to be at the door just to, to notice the guest that comes through. Not to get lost in their stories and then hang out in the restaurant talking about it but also not shutting the door on them. It's really that simple, this practice. Okay, it's not that easy, but (laughs) job description is really simple. Just notice the guests that come through. So it's also about, it's not about figuring out, like sometimes maybe you came here with all kinds of problems in your life that you'd like to figure out or to solve or to fix. I know we should have told you this on the description of the meditation retreat. <laughs> but, but that's not in the job description. The, the, the door person isn't interested in fixing or figuring out anything. The door person is there just to notice, just to greet. So that's the bad news for tonight. If you came here to like figure out your problems, it's just, it's just not part of the job description. You can do it after the retreat, which is cool, but not on the retreat. So how does this look? I, w- I wanna uh, go into this just a little bit more in detail. You know, what are the guests? You know, the guests is really any kind of experience. Hearing, hearing a sound, a sound arises. A sensation, an emotion arises. A thought, a taste or a smell or a sight. Just to notice, to acknowledge. Just to be with in that way. And I do want to remind you, it's actually a bad analogy. And sometimes I like to use bad analogies because then you can remember, wow, Brian really uses bad analogies when he teaches. And how is it a bad analogy? 
because I can notice also when I'm shutting the door on the guests. And I can still be in that place of noticing when I'm hanging out in the restaurant, having getting lost in that thought or my to-do list, or remembering that memory for the 200th time. I can notice that that's what the mind is doing. So there's, you know, there's a little imperfection in this analogy. So to notice when those activities of the, of the mind are happening. And it's true, as, as we had this conversation in the, the question and answer, it can be helpful to, to bring some things in to allow the door person to start to feel a little bit more stable at the door. That's why we're beginning to talk about, you know, what's called an anchor, having an anchor to your sitting meditation. For example, utilizing the feeling of the breathing as something to come back to. Like the abdomen rising and falling or the feeling the breath at the nostrils or the chest cavity. Just this gentle allowing the attention to collect around the breath. And it's true, the, the breath doesn't work for everyone, it, it seems like, I'd say maybe like three or 5% of meditators, the breath just, just doesn't work for a whole host of reasons. And there's, there's nothing magical about the breath, but still having some kind of anchor, maybe if the breath doesn't work for you, using the activity of hearing or simply the body sitting. So that can be helpful to have this place to go back to, like the breath or hearing the body. But I want to be clear also that in terms of being the door person, the goal is not just to be with the breath and then to assess how well or how poorly your day is going, is how much you've been with the breath. Because that's just one guest that goes through the door. And it, it is true, we want to allow the mind to collect around it. But being aware of a sound or a, a pain in the knee or a thought is just as good of a guest to greet as the breath. The breath isn't like a better guest. It's just one of the guests. And this is important to remember. It's this art of allowing the attention to collect around the breath. But there's so many other things to, 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 to be aware of as well. Because that's what's gonna happen. There's gonna be, you're gonna be with the feeling of the breathing. And then your mind's gonna get lost in some thought, which I'm equating to being in the restaurant with the, the mind that's planning your next vacation or whatever it is. And what's important is to notice that you're in the restaurant. Oh, interesting, planning is happening. And this, this is a really important moment because often what happens is there's a noticing that thinking is happening and then there's an immediately, damn it, I need to get back to the breath. But that's not really being, it's not being such a great door person because it's kind of a pushing away one of the other guests. Because all that's happening when my mind's lost in thought is it's just planning. And you know that moment, right? You've been paying attention to the breath, the mind gets lost. And then there's the moment of mindfulness where you recognize that you've been lost in thought. What a cool moment. Don't go back to the breath too quickly. To pause and to be like, oh, interesting, planning. Oh, remembering's been happening. Oh, fantasizing, that's what's happening. Oh, judging, there it is again, judging. Yep, I'm at the restaurant with judging again, there it is. 
Oh, and it feels like this. Interesting, I can feel it in my body. I check it out for a while, and then I come back to the breath. This is what I call a little bit of like after-the-fact mindfulness. Something's happened, it's not happening in the present moment, but I reflect back just a little bit what's been happening those last few minutes. I notice that, and then I come back. This is, this is like a relaxed door person, an open door person. This is why relaxation is so important. We'll get to that a little bit tomorrow morning. That's the activity of the door person. Whereas if I'm just trying to jerk the mind back to the, the breath, I'm not recognizing that important guest to recognize. So this is subtle but significant for what we're trying to get a feeling for getting this feeling for being a door person. Or when there's the experience that you don't want to notice. Maybe there's an emotion coming up, a feeling of irritation. And there's this forcing to try to be with the breath in a way that you're just shutting the door. You're being the door person that's shutting the door. What's it like to actually name Oh, irritation is here. Oh, and it feels like this. So again, it's very simple. Just being the door person. Yeah, utilizing the breath as an anchor to allow that stabilizing of doing that. Noticing when you get lost and you're at the restaurant or you're shutting the door. So just this. Maybe one more facet of the door person. You know, we'll probably get into this more as the retreat goes on. But sometimes when I find myself in the restaurant or at the bar, maybe, has anybody been at the restaurant or the bar today? Has I been the only one? Okay, phew, not the only one. <laughs> maybe spent a long time there. Is... Uh, is sometimes like when I feel, sometimes what I want to start to become sensitive to is, especially if the mind's lost in thought, is what's the emotion that's there that's driving it? Sometimes it's a feeling of excitement. This afternoon for me, there's, there's, there's this conflict that's happening with this organization I'm working with, irritation. Oh, there it is, irritation. And what I need to do, which so tricky about getting out of the restaurants, restaurant is that when I notice there's the, the emotion of irritation, I, I get more fascinated about what I'm irritated about rather than the irritation itself. And that's the turn we're trying to make into mindfulness. Oh, irritation feels like this rather than I'm irritated about that. So I'm noticing the present moment, the, the lived experience of that. This moves me into living rather than merely surviving. This is such a small turn we're asking you to do. It's a turn into noticing. This is what's so transformative. You know, the the image that was given to me by one of my teachers is it's kind of like 
let's say we're on the coast of California because I've used this analogy more in California, so my <laughs> geography isn't as good as out here. So you're on the coast of California and you're in a sail ship and you have a rudder on your ship. And if you were to turn your rudder just a little bit, that could make the difference of ending up in Japan or the South Pacific Islands. That vast, that vast distance just from turning the rudder of the ship can make such a, a big difference of where we end up over time. We're just asking you to turn the rudder, the, the rudder into being the door person into simply noticing. So just one thing, being the door person, shifting the rudder, this willingness to be present with a sense of ease, a sense of relaxation. Another thing that I'm just gonna briefly mention and I'll come back to it tomorrow morning. Sometimes also what helps the door person become the door person is uh, in your sitting and walking meditation these first few days to begin to get a sense of, of anything that's pleasant like in what I call your anchor. So the feeling of the breathing or the sound of, uh, or, or the activity of hearing if it's in the sitting meditation or in the walking meditation. If there's anything pleasant in that to begin to savor that. Because if I can begin to open up to that which is pleasurable, it actually allows our physiology to settle. And what you're going to notice is you don't always have a choice about this. Sometimes you're going to do walking meditation and it's just unpleasant. Or you do sitting meditation and it's just unpleasant. So you're with that. But it's also seeing if you can open up to the pleasant a little bit to allow for a settling. One caveat about all that I'm sharing, and this probably applies to, to any instruction I give you, is hopefully by now, after this day, you've realized how messy meditation can be. Like we give you these instructions and then you do walking meditation, sitting meditation, eating meditation, and it can feel so chaotic. And this is just the way it is. Like we're up here and we're like giving you, I don't know if anybody, everybody knows this or this reference, but uh, it's like we're giving you the cliff notes. I don't know if you know the cliff notes. You, I don't know if you remember for some of us maybe being in high school in the book that you were supposed to read, like the novel you're supposed to read, but you didn't. And then you went to the store, you got your friend's cliff notes so that you could hope you could act like you actually read the book. And the cliff notes are just like the shorthand of the entire novel. So I'm, I'm up here just giving you the cliff notes to this whole journey, and you're gonna have to navigate this huge novel. So uh, good luck with that. And <laughs> I hope the, the cliff notes help somewhat to uh, get you by. They did help me at times. 
So this is what we're doing. One thing. Being the door person. How does this work? How does this lead to freedom? How does it lead to a different way of being in the world? And I'd like to share with you another analogy that comes from the Thai forests master Ajahn Chah. And what I appreciate about his analogies is how how earthy they are. You know, he, here here his monastery is really in the forest in the jungle in Thailand and grew up in a village in 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 Southeast Asia. So these kind of these down to earth examples. So he gives this example about how this this works, what we're doing here being the door person. He says, for example, suppose at home you have a pet monkey. Now, monkeys don't stay still for long. They like to jump around and grab onto things. That's how monkeys are. Now, you come to the meditation center and you see the monkey here. This monkey doesn't stay still either. It jumps around just the same. But it doesn't bother you, does it? Why doesn't it bother you? Because you've raised a monkey before. You know what they're like. And if you know just one monkey, no matter how many provinces you go to, no matter how many monkeys you see, you won't be bothered by them, will you? This is one who understands monkeys. If we understand monkeys, then we won't become a monkey. If you don't understand monkeys, you may become a monkey yourself. Do you understand? When you see it reaching for this or that, you shout, Hey, you get angry. That damn monkey? This is one who doesn't know monkeys. Because one who knows monkeys sees that the monkey at home and the monkey at the retreat center are just the same. Why should you get annoyed? When you see what monkeys are like, that's enough. Then you can be at peace. It's just that, it's just to see what's going on in that mind and not to be fooled, just to see. This great title of this poem by Rob Berbea, which I love, The Scene That Frees, that's what we're engaging in, being the door person. Again, it can be such a simple turn. I remember I was leading a, a weekend retreat and somebody shared after the first day, was, you know, during many people on these weekend re- retreats, they have their weekend and then they're going back to a five-day you know, work day and then a weekend. And, and sacrificing a weekend to do a retreat can be a really big thing. And they came and, and they were so tired the first day, they just felt like they were sleeping the first day and they, they said at, at the the end of the day, they started to have this feeling of feeling so frustrated. Here, here's one of their valuable weekend days. And all they did was just like, we're tired the entire time on this meditation retreat the first day. 
And then she said there was the turn. And the turn was, oh, this is just tiredness. That's all it is. That was a huge breakthrough for them because then what they what she could see is like, oh, there's tiredness and there's the big story about it, about how it's ruining my weekend. And she said it was so relieving to see, oh, it's just it's just tiredness. That's all that's going on. She saw what was going on and then she was at peace. That's the scene that frees. So again, moving into living through being the door person that's infused with this scene that frees. Just to notice. Like it's been so freeing for me to begin to start to see, oh, this is just thinking. Oh, this is judging. Not, I'm a judgmental person. How do I stop this? I'm such a horrible person. Oh, it's just judging. Because when I get to the point where it's just judging, then it doesn't matter how much it's coming or going because I'm not hooked by it. I'm just being the door person and I'm seeing it move through. Boy, that's such a relief. Because so much of my suffering comes from being bombarded by thoughts and then I identify with them where I get entangled with them or emotions. You know what I'm talking about? I always have to check if I'm the only one that's (laughs) suffered in these particular ways. Phew, thanks for reassuring me a little bit at least. And then there's one other facet of this path and practice and and that's how I hold what we're doing here, how I hold being a door person. And it's how I frame it all. There's a, a sutta called the Firebrand Sutta, these early discourses of uh, the Buddha's teachings. And the Buddha's talking about the foremost practitioner. And he says, just as from a cow comes milk and from milk curds and from curds butter and from butter ghee, from ghee, the skimmings of ghee, these, the skimmings of ghee are reckoned the foremost, the most refined. And in the same way, the individual who practices for their own benefit and for that of others is the foremost the chief, the most outstanding, the highest, and the supreme. This idea that I'm here practicing not only for my own life, but for that of others. I practice, yes, for my own life. So important to take care of ourselves with this practice and for family and for community and society. I think it's uh, so essential, especially in these modern times. 
especially with this uptick of, uh, they say there's an uptick of these kind of narcissistic tendencies. Like there was a, a critique by uh, the scholar and author uh, C.W. Huntington, Sandy Huntington, and he wrote an article called The Triumph. It was a critique on kind of modern mindfulness. And he, he entitled it The Triumph of Narcissism. And that was a so-so article, but I love the title. <laughs> and it reminds me how, yes, I want to take care of myself. Yes, I want to be self-reflective. But I don't want to be that to be my only circle. That what we're doing here reaches much farther than just our own lives. And it's been so important for me to remember that. And later on, and uh, kind of in later Buddhism, this this uh, comes into to be known as bodhicitta, this this aspiration to practice for the benefit of all beings. And and I think, and for those of you who practice for a while, I think you start to get a feeling sense of how there's just something so right about this idea that when we get much more of a sense of the interdependent world that we live in, this just makes, this is just, starts to feel like the obvious impulse to have, the obvious aspiration to practice for ourselves and for others. And it's true in, in later Buddhism, for example, in Tibetan Buddhism, it's, it's a fundamental aspect, this having this aspiration to practice for all beings. And I do want to point out, I'm just sharing this with you, it's, it's your decision to either add something like this or not. For example, I, uh, you know, and, and I had a friend who was a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner and came into kind of this insight meditation context. And he was so shocked because uh, there we would just start to do sitting meditation or walking meditation and not have this, just, just the few moments to make an aspiration of may this go for the benefit of all beings. He, he just thought it was crazy that you would practice without having that aspiration just because of the, the kind of cultural context he was coming from. And I thought to myself, for me, that's kind of true. There is something just crazy about that. We live in this interdependent world. And I find it so helpful. I think this is what I incorporate, just so you know, like when, for me, when I'm bowing, you know, before and after a sit, I, I make that aspiration before the sits. And then at the end, you know, may, this, may the merit of what I've just done in this sit go for the benefit of all beings. So I'm inviting you to, to maybe bring this in, having this altruistic intention in, in your practice if it fits for you. And I'm offering you, inviting you to do something that really just takes just a few seconds to do. You sit down, you start a walking meditation. Oh, may this go for the benefit of all beings. Just that. Not to think about it, but to notice how it can start to change how we walk in the world. It can start to change how we meditate. Not on some conscious level, but I think more on a visceral level. So I, I want to give a, a couple examples of this, just to hopefully get a feeling sense of this. Of how what you're doing here reaches so much farther than your own life. 
There's a story really around healing, but which I think is also intertwined with this process of, of awakening or process of, free, of freedom. And it's a story that comes out of when I was, uh, I, I used to uh, work with people individually navigating issues of trauma. And I remember working with an individual and she had been in uh, many abusive relationships and this whole kind of cycle of abusive relationships she she found herself caught in. And and as we worked, she started to really start to step out of that and to begin to truly and deeply heal. And as this healing process started to really take hold and transform her life, she would share with me how she began to realize she was healing a dynamic that had stretched, stretched back really for generations in various forms in her family. Really beginning to have a feeling of stopping a dynamic that went beyond just her own life. And it was fascinating because she started to have dreams and from her worldview, given how she, she was situated, she had this palpable inner sense of, of feeling supported by her ancestors, especially her women ancestors, and them coming to visit her in her dreams and thanking her for what she was doing. The sense of really ending something that had been going on for such a long time. Benefiting past generations and future generations. It wasn't just about her small little life. It reached much farther than that. So here we are. I really do feel like we're here putting an end to old habitual patterns that might have been going on for generations. I know I can feel that just in my own family background of really that feeling of beginning to put an end to to the whole old habitual patterns that this mind and body have, have inherited from family, from society. Whether it be more on the personal level of the self-judgment or on the collective level of, of the racialized thinking or the patriarchal ways of being. What a powerful thing to bring an end to with this practice. I think it provides another understanding of what it means to end rebirth. I think there's many ways of understanding that, and I don't want to think it's important in a room that there's room for people to believe in literal rebirth or to take that figuratively, and there can be a, a space for multiplicity. But I think for me, it, it, this sense gives a, a, a new way of understanding rebirth and maybe just a little bit uh, maybe one one way of understanding this. Uh, for example, the, the Tibetan teacher Chogyam Trungpa, somebody asked him what gets reborn, and he said, your bad habits. <laughs> In that sense, I'm so down for ending rebirth for myself and for society and our communities. And I think it gives new meaning to this passage from the Buddha of getting a sense of 
really what we've inherited, you know, whether it be, you know, from this dominant culture around those things I'm talking about, whether it be around classism or sexism or racism. And the Buddha asks, what do you think, practitioners, which is more, the stream of tears that you have shed as you have roamed and wandered on through this long course, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable. This or the water in the four great oceans. And then the monastics reply, As we understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, the stream of tears that we have shed as we have roamed and wandered through this long course, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable, this alone is more than the water in the four great oceans. What a wonderful thing to put an end to, whether it be intergenerationally or within our own lives. So having this sense that we're here not only to practice for ourselves, but to practice for others. And bringing it to life, just with this simple aspiration, maybe at the beginning of a sit, or the beginning of a walking meditation. I think I'll, I'll end with a uh, what's called a, a dedication, a red Tara dedication that comes from a Tibetan practice. But I, I feel like it gives some more words to this this uh, intention to practice for for all beings. And yes, it's completely over the top. But I love kind of over the top and extreme kind of visions. <laughs> Throughout my many lives and until this moment, whatever virtue I have accomplished, including the merit generated by this practice, like the practice we're doing on this retreat, and all that I will ever attain, this I offer for the welfare of sentient beings. May sickness, war, famine, and suffering be decreased for every living being, while their wisdom and compassion increase in this and every future life. May I clearly perceive all experiences to be as insubstantial as the dream fabric of the night and instantly awaken to perceive the pure wisdom display in in the arising in every phenomenon. May I quickly attain awakening in order to work ceaselessly for the liberation of all sentient beings.
So let's just sit for a, a moment here and then I'll ring the bell and we'll move into the walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.